Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is brought to you by Great Hearts Academies, a nonprofit network of K-12 public charter schools offering a rigorous classical liberal arts education grounded in the best of the Western tradition. Great Hearts operates 34 academies in Arizona and Texas, serving over 21,000 students with plans for further growth underway. Great Hearts is in search of exceptional school leaders who embrace a classical and liberal philosophy of education and who possess a well-grounded vision for the moral and intellectual formation of the human person. Learn how you can join a community of classical leaders by visiting greatheartsamerica.org careers. That's greatheartsamerica.org careers. This is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and thank you for joining me for this podcast episode, which will be dedicated to Cardinal John Henry Newman. As we continue to explore the idea of restful learning, or skole, this marvelous Greek word that connotes order, peace, restful learning, conversation and discussion with friends about the things that are most worthwhile— it's appropriate to bring up some great thinkers about what the educated life consists. And John Henry Newman would be one of those. So as we go through our various episodes, I will be occasionally dedicating a podcast to a particular thinker. John Henry Newman was born in 1801 in London. He went to Oxford University at the age of 16, which wasn't that uncommon in those days. And after graduating, he became a tutor at one of the colleges there, Oriel College. And while serving as a tutor, he also was ordained as a priest in the Church of England, and he served as the vicar at St. Mary's, the university church. He was also one of the leaders of the Oxford Movement in the 1830s and 1840s. The Oxford Movement was a movement within Anglicanism to return to the ancient roots of the church. It was kind of an Anglo-Catholic renewal, and he was a writer and leader in that renewal. He had a concern to go back to the ancient and undivided church and look for the kind of seminal and pervasive ideas of the Christian faith that had characterized the first millennium. He became a Catholic in 1845 and was commissioned to be and appointed to be cardinal in 1879 by Pope Leo XIII. Well, Newman wrote a lot about education, and he wrote uh, a book that became pretty famous about it. It's called The Idea of a University. And in his book, The Idea of a University, he surveys what education has been considered to be, particularly in the Greek, Roman, and Christian tradition, and re-articulates it for the mid-1800s. He was asked to be a part of a team that would start a new Catholic university in Ireland. And this was the reason why he began to lecture and then uh, combined his lectures into a book called The Idea of a University. What 
is university learning? What is liberal learning, liberal knowledge and education? This is what he sets out to do, and he does it in a way that is eloquent, memorable, pithy, and, well, powerful. There are a number of uh, themes that you would, you would note in this book. One is, as I've already mentioned, continuity. He sees education in the mid-1800s as something that should be in continuity with what has gone before. Not that there can't be some innovation, but the good permanent ideas that have always helped to form human souls should be continued, perhaps refined, but continued. So he is concerned to go back and learn from the wisdom that is a tradition. And you might know that the word tradition, coming from the Latin tradere, means something handed down, something that has been conceived or perceived to be so worthwhile that it is worth keeping and extending throughout time to future generations. He's also concerned with community, continuity and community. And he is not happy with the increasing fragmentation that he was witnessing in education and indeed in society generally. Sound a little bit like the 21st century? Well, these concerns have been around for a while. So he's seeking wholeness and he's seeking a community of learners, teachers and students, and books and the masters and, yes, even the writers of books. He thinks these should be gathered together in a university. Now, you might know that the word university you know, has an interesting etymology. It, it doesn't mean one and many combined. Uh, the, you know, the, the unus that you hear in university does mean one. So there's a kind of unity that should characterize a university. But that versity part comes from the Latin versus, which means something that has been folded in. It's related to our word verse and, and poetry. A verse, it was like a furrow where you'd go back and forth. In fact, to the Romans, to, to, to plow with an ox and go one direction and then make a U-turn and go the next direction, that was a versus. And so, of course, lines of poetry are kind of like the furrows that a, a plow with an ox would make. So a university is an institution in which many things are folded in in a kind of unity together, forming a community. In fact, the word college is an interesting related word because it comes from collegere, which means to gather or collect. But even before that, the etymology of collegere means to read together with others. Legere, to read. So if you imagine a college being a group of learners who come together to read the great books in community and to study them, well, then you have a sense of what the word college used to mean, at least in its original kind of sense. Well, now, in the 1800s, and even today, of course, in the 21st century, we witness a lot of departmental fragmentation in university learning. Our universities, some have said, have become multiversities, it's rare that you have, for example, science faculty in meaningful conversation and collaboration with the so-called humanities faculty. In fact, Newman is concerned that those in the humanities are even being cut off from one another. 
And isn't this the case today? He thinks that the role of the magister or teacher is to be a fellow and to have a dynamic, meaningful relationship with students. And of course, that's a part of the classical tradition of learning an important relationship between teacher and student, in which the teacher is essentially an ongoing student, just a mature one, and the student is an immature teacher. But all, teachers and students alike, seeking the true, the good, and the beautiful by means of the greatest books that have been written and a study of the liberal arts, or the artes liberales. Well, this is the vision that Newman is recapturing, and as I say, re-articulating in the mid-1800s. He believed that a school should involve nurture. He, he's uh, serious about the word alma mater, that our college, our schools, should be like a nourishing mother, which is what alma mater means. Knowing her children one by one, he writes, not a foundry or a mint or a treadmill. So sometimes we compare modern education, progressive education, and institutions to fact, the factory model, etc. Well, Newman says it's not a foundry, it's not a mint, it's not a treadwill, treadmill. It should be a nourishing mother, an alma mater. So when you hear the word alumni, this, it's a relation to those who have been nourished by such a mater, so continuity, community, nurture. He also includes as his theme liberality, liberal knowledge. And he contrasts that with a purely practical, utilitarian, or instrumental view of learning. He thinks that liberal knowledge forms human beings to be prepared to serve in all kinds of ways that are hard to predict. He believes also that there should be a kind of unity to this liberal knowledge. And he speaks, of course, in this title about the idea of the university. And, well, what is this idea? Well, it's the single, almost visual image that governs the whole. And here's a quotation. All knowledge forms one whole or circle with various branches of learning. Liberal knowledge, or what he calls philosophy, which is the end or idea of a university, consists in that awareness of the bearing of each on the others by which alone the whole can be perceived. And that quotes from Martin Zvaglik, who wrote an introduction to the book, The Idea of a University. He believes that theology is important for bringing about both unity and a kind of practical utility. The utility of the connected views of things, which is the university's direct aim to impart. He thinks that's practical. Now, essentially, he's re-articulating Aristotle's distinction between the liberal and the practical, or the liberal and the useful. And this is a kind of paradox, and people sometimes trip over it. Because he is not advocating for a pure pragmatism. In fact, he argues that by focusing on liberal knowledge, we will find a kind of utility that comes about as, as an indirect result, but we don't seek directly for utility. We seek for the connected view of things. That's the university's direct aim, and practical utility ends up being one of the results 
Somewhere Chesterton says, the most pragmatic thing we can do is not to be pragmatic. He also writes that the theory of Athenian humanism, which he admires, he knows the Greek and Roman traditions of education, the theory of the Athenian or Greek view of education and humanism was not really fulfilled in Athens, but has literally and unequivocally been realized within the territory of Christianity, he writes. Let me repeat that again. The theory of Athenian humanism was not really fulfilled in Athens, but has literally and unequivocally been realized within the territory of Christianity. This is an important aspect to Newman's theory of education. The Christian faith becomes the fulfillment of that which Athens sought and yearned for. The idea that humans could enjoy scholae, undistracted time to study and converse about the things that are most worthwhile, usually with good friends, usually in a beautiful place, and usually with good food and drink. This idea of uh, the Roman idea of humanitas, the Greek idea of paideia, he says it was not really fulfilled in Greece or in Rome, but has found its fulfillment in the Christian faith and in Christian society. So for those of you who are Christians, this is something that you should know about the history of your faith and the way your faith has been woven into education and the ideals of education. And if you're outside of the Christian faith, this is still a historical reality that is much present with us even today, despite of the fragmentation that we're encountering in modern education. So, Newman argues for continuity, community, nurture, liberality, unity, and even theology in the university. And he goes on to talk about theology. Now, some of you will remember that theology has been called the governess of all of the liberal arts or the queen of the sciences, that which brings unity and coherence to them all. He thinks this is true, that theology brings a kind of unity first to the studies. And he says something along these lines. The omission of any one branch of study, including theology, impairs the wholeness of knowledge which a university exists to communicate. So the university should be a home for all sciences. And by science, he means a body of knowledge. And the liberal arts, the study of the liberal arts, enable humans to actually create bodies of knowledge or create sciences. And that word science comes from scientia. It means knowledge. It means a body of knowledge governed by principles. Biology, for example, would be a, a body of knowledge governed by patterns of, uh, that are followed by living organisms. And then we have another body of knowledge, say, in chemistry. Now, we humans have essentially created these sciences. Uh, the verb is skio, skio skire, which means I know, and related to words like conscience and prescience, which is to know something ahead of time. So it means knowledge. He also thinks that this circle of knowledge would be maimed by the absence of theological truths. Why? And this is Martin Zvaglik again. Because theology, like all sciences, has some bearing on other sciences. And where it is absent, other sciences will try to fill up the gap by theologizing in its place. 
Now, that's an interesting claim that theology needs to be present because there are, in fact, according to the Christian, biblical truths about God and his way with the world revealed in nature and in Scripture that, if neglected, will do harm to our understanding of other sciences because all truths are related to all truths. Truths are in conversation with one another. Or, as Zvaglik writes, all sciences have some bearing on other sciences. And so if you take theology out, then those sciences will have to begin to theologize. He also thinks that, this Newman does, that theology brings a kind of unity and benefit to students, not just studies, but to students. Liberal knowledge inevitably leads to a blessing to the students, and that blessing is a kind of generalized benefit or utility. Here's what John Davison writes, writing in 1811 about this, and it's quoted, he's quoted favorably by Newman. Davison writes, When the tide flows strong in the main sea, we shall never doubt, but it will in due time fill every channel, creek, and harbor. This just means that by pursuing liberal knowledge, the liberal arts, the great books, the sciences, studying them together as a circle of knowledge and learning the relationship of these parts to the whole, this will create a kind of rising tide that will benefit the student and fill up every channel, creek, or harbor in that person's life. Meaning, if you've had this kind of education and you find yourself being a stockbroker, you will be benefited greatly by it. If you find yourself being a plumber, you will find yourself being greatly benefited in practical ways because of your liberal studies. He also thinks that theology brings a benefit to the Christian faith and to the university by means of the Christian faith. He says that the moral influence of the Christian faith provides for integrity to the university, if not the essence of the university. So Newman thinks that the Christian faith brings a kind of integrity. It, it creates intellectual honesty. It creates a kind of humility among teachers and students. It, it creates that humility that allows us to learn from those who have gone before us, as well as the great minds and writers of the present time. But he even thinks that it might be the essence of what a university is. Finally, he mentions culture, that the university becomes a means by which culture is created, or at least a means by which it is helped to become formed in a society. It's worth reading him, reading several sentences, a paragraph from Newman when he talks about culture. And so here we go. This is from his discourse number nine in The Idea of a University. Newman writes, I have laid down first that all branches of knowledge are, at least implicitly, the subject matter of its teaching. That's what universities are about. That these branches are not isolated and independent one of another, but form together a whole or system that they run into each other and complete each other and that in proportion to our view of them as a whole is the exactness and trustworthiness of the knowledge which they separately convey. 
that the process of imparting knowledge to the intellect in this philosophical way is its true culture. That such culture is a good in itself. That the knowledge which is both its instrument and result is called liberal knowledge. That such culture, together with the knowledge which affects it, may fitly be sought for its own sake. That it is, however, in addition of great secular utility, as constituting the best and highest function of the intellect for social and political life. And lastly, that considered in a religious aspect, it concurs with Christianity a certain way, and then diverges from it, and consequently proves, in the event, sometimes its serviceable ally, sometimes from its very resemblance to it, an insidious and dangerous foe. This gives you a sense of, well, first of all, how long a sentence can be in Newman's writing, but also its eloquence and its uh, complex, harmonious thought. And that passage highlights this kind of paradox that liberal learning is good for its own sake and creates a kind of culture that is good for its own sake, but also produces a kind of what he calls great secular utility that is providing for the intellect in social and political life. So there you have it, and this is, of course, something similar to what the Greeks said a long time ago, Aristotle in particular, that liberal learning is good for its own sake and is pursued for its own sake and yet ends up bringing great practical benefits, even if indirectly. Well, he thinks the Christian university, you can see that he thinks it's important that the Christian faith be present in a university. He thinks that it's made Christian by not so much the formal teaching of theology, although he thinks it should be present, but it's made Christian by the ethos, the character, the atmosphere of the place. Above all, the influence of teachers who themselves exemplified, however imperfectly, the Christian ideal. Back again to his comments about how important the relationship between teacher and student is. A relationship, really, that is one of charity, humility, love. He believes that this liberal education that we would seek in a university consists of the knowledge of first principles, a knowledge of first principles and relations, rather than the knowledge of mere facts. And he thinks this is the best preparation for any career, and whose attributes are these, freedom, equitableness, calmness, moderation, and wisdom. Well, I'd like to conclude with a famous passage from the idea of a university. Uh, I could probably, I probably should have just dedicated a podcast to this passage and the discussion of it. But let me read it to you, and I think you'll enjoy its eloquence. He's writing about the perfection of the intellect in this paragraph. And by the perfection of the intellect, he doesn't mean a flawless intellect. He means a mature well or fully developed intellect. Here's what he writes. That perfection of the intellect, which is the result of education, 
and its beau ideal, which means beautiful ideal, to be imparted in their respective measures is, and he's going to define it now, here's what the perfection of the intellect consists of. It is the clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of all things. Well, he's not done. (laughs) That's a beautiful statement. This education results in the clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of all things. There, We're back at the circle of knowledge and understanding the relationship of various kinds of sciences and um, segments of knowledge to one another. But I'm interrupting myself. Let me continue. It is the clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of all things as far as the fine mind can embrace them each in its place, and with its own characteristics upon it. That's a sentence. But he has one more. He continues. It is almost prophetic from its knowledge of history. It is almost heart-searching from its knowledge of human nature. It has almost supernatural charity from its freedom from littleness and prejudice. It has almost the repose of faith because nothing can startle it. It has almost the beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation. So intimate is it with the eternal order of things and the music of the spheres. Well, this is just another way of saying wisdom. This kind of liberal education that matures the intellect results in wisdom in the ways that Newman has described. It's clear, calm. It's clear and calm. It has a clear, calm, accurate vision of all things because of its long study of the liberal arts, great books, and sciences. As far as the fine mind can embrace them, it means humans do have their limitations. But it's also understanding everything in its place, each in its place, and its own characteristics. That is a well-rounded education. He notes that it's prophetic. And why is it prophetic? Almost able to predict the future because of its knowledge of history, by which we acquire prudence. By knowing the past well, we can understand the present and almost predict what may happen in the future. What happens, for example, when you raise taxes? What happens when there's a sudden invasion of a country? How will people and humans respond? Well, if you've studied history well, you'll know that some will stand and fight and many will flee. It is almost heart-searching from its knowledge of human nature. And how does it know how to search the hearts of human beings? Well, because of a long study of literature and the great books, we've come to know better what and who humans are. It has almost supernatural charity from its freedom from littleness. How is this educated person free from littleness? Well, by having traveled so far and long, by reading and studying and conversation with friends about the true, the good, and the beautiful. It's free from prejudice. We're not as likely to think so highly of our own opinions when we have 
studied so long the opinions of the great men and women who have preceded us. It has almost the repose of faith because nothing can startle it. Faith is that trusting in things that aren't even well seen. It's the certainty of things that are hoped for. We read in Hebrews 11. And so it's not easily startled, or the way he puts it, nothing can startle it. It has almost the beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation. Here again, that understanding of how the parts fit together in a coherent whole. And he says, this is because of contemplation. We have thought deeply over a long period of time about these relations until it's become a part of us, until there's a kind of harmony of soul in us that we might say reflects the harmony that we see in the heavens. And that's why he says, so intimate is it with the eternal order of things and the music of the spheres. And that phrase, the music of the spheres, is a reference to the astronomical harmony that has been perceived over the centuries as we've studied the movement of the planets and stars. And it was thought that there was music in space because anything that moves makes a noise. And so even though we can't hear the music that the planets make as they rotate, it was thought that they do make music a beautiful music that maybe we just yet don't have the ears to hear. Well, he is tapping in to so many thoughts and ideas and writers, a tradition here in these two sentences that makes this writing itself a kind of harmony worth our contemplation. And once again, revealing his wisdom that inspires us to seek the same. Well, thank you for traveling with me a bit as we've explored, in a very summary fashion, the writing of this great thinker on education, John Henry Newman. I hope you join me for the next podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.